And I think if you stick to, you know, trying to do what you think you do for your family or for yourself or, 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 or the best for the most people, it'll probably steer us. But the whole Hopkins research on momentarium has been mobilized to uh, do some of the COVID issues. And for example, people who are looking at things in cancer or people looking at things even in neurosurgery labs, we're now actually part of the COVID uh, response. And so it's becoming this giant research institute that's focusing on COVID in addition to, to clinical issues that we normally do. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today we have another in our series on coronavirus, and we are very fortunate today to be joined by Dan Shuba. Dan is a full professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks. Thank you very much, both Mike and JP, for having me. This podcast is, has been great for all of us, so thanks for doing this, and especially for the COVID time, too. Yeah, Dan, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to neurosurgery and Johns Hopkins. Right. So I am uh, now based in at Johns Hopkins. I've uh, I trained there as a neurosurgeon. Uh, my focus of my practice, although you know all of us get board certified and everything, is really complex spine surgery. And then within that, I basically do a lot of tumor surgery and I do a lot of uh, deformity surgery. And so my clinical practice and my research practice and what I publish on and what I write in my textbooks are really around spine tumors and deformity. So anybody who's been watching uh, the news has noticed that Hopkins is front and center in all of this. And, and we hear about the Hopkins data and you guys are epidemiologically at the, the forefront in this country anyways. We're very fortunate that you guys have been doing that. So congratulations to you and thank you for your service. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on the ground at your institution? Yeah, so I think what, what's been nice uh, about the Hopkins response and, and what I've been involved with myself and with one of my peers is that we have the luxury of not being uh, in, a, in a complete surge mode right now, like New York City, for example. So that's allowed us to really have a ton of meetings and a lot of creativity that's being shared amongst departments, amongst research centers. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, early on uh, in this crisis mode, when it was hitting other places sooner, uh, we had uh, kind of a, the leadership of the hospital told us that all the labs, a lot of the lab, uh, laboratory experiments should be held, those involving animals and other things, just for safety of people. But also what happened was they took all the infrastructure and a lot of the actual resources, whether it be pipettes or test tubes or even um, uh, some type of uh, uh, critical analysis tools that could be used for detecting COVID. And they said, donate that to the clinical side. So basically, the whole Hopkins research on momentarium has been mobilized to uh, do some of the COVID issues. And for example, people who are looking at things in cancer or people looking at things even in neurosurgery labs, we're now actually part of the COVID uh, response. And so it's becoming this giant research institute that's focusing on COVID in addition to, to clinical issues that we normally do. 
Well, that's phenomenal. I mean, all of us have experienced on the clinical side and, and in centers across the country, discussion of uh, mobilizing and reallocating personnel, uh, reallocating PPE and, and thinking about conserving those resources. Um, it, it's great to hear that, that such a large and prestigious research institution is doing the same thing on the laboratory side. Yeah. And, and to your point, the PPE is a big deal, right? Because a lot of the laboratories have gloves and face masks. And so that's obviously being uh, 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 shifted. And then we have our biomedical engineering uh, school. And then you hear uh, people making uh, masks out of 3D printers and such. So this is becoming a uh, kind of a team effort. And we're trying to, in essence, like a lot of places are, harness what we do um, normally for the, uh, the betterment of this, this specific crisis right now. Well, that, that's great to hear that so many resources are being mobilized in the laboratories. Obviously, anyone following the news um, and keeping up with the work coming out of uh, Hopkins there, you know, this, uh, this potential antibody treatment, um, any, any number of treatments that you folks are looking into, hopefully one of them may find the key, at least for some of these patients. Um, pivoting then to, to look at the clinical side there, in, in your practice, sir, how, how, have, how has this been changing your day-to-day? As you said, you haven't been hit by a huge surge there yet, but I expect you're still seeing some reduction in volume, some allocation of hospital resources and beds to either potential or current patients um, suffering with this virus. Yeah, I think I'll respond to that in, in two different ways. One is I had my first virtual clinic ever, and it worked out very, very well, which was which was great. And I think the reasons I think it worked out well was the things that patients don't like when they come to my clinic is driving into the city, parking, waiting for me. It becomes this, it becomes like a you know four or five hour or longer uh, uh, deal for them to come see me for half an hour versus now I'm calling them at their homes, and so I think they like that. Number two is I don't, and I'm, I'm sure you can both talk about about this as well as when patients are expecting to see you in the clinic and you keep them waiting, it's very inconveniencing. But when you call them at home at night and say, hey, I just had a free moment, want to see how you're doing. They really do enjoy that. They feel it's almost like you're calling them on, on, you know, on, on your time. And so I almost felt like I got a little bit of that as well. So patients were very thankful that I made time for them, even though we had a scheduled appointment. So I think as we go after this, I think the video co- uh, clinic is going to remain uh, uh, something that's a big part of this. So that's a, that's a positive that I'm going to take out of this, that this may be something that we can use technology to help us. The the tougher side, or not, maybe it's not negative, but something that has been more challenging for me. And this is something that uh, one of my colleagues who's involved with the task force at Hopkins who runs it uh, basically said he he couldn't sleep uh, multiple nights after these policies came out. But um, we are starting to have this situation where what if really is, there is a surge of these cases and we do have scarce resources that we cannot share. And none of us, unless you spend time, I I know Dr. Wang, uh, Dr. Wang does this in, in Haiti when, when there was an issue. And, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Mike, but I remember you know, going to other places that don't have the resources uh, and really seeing how you have to change the way you treat patients when you don't have enough resources. In America, we're often spoiled by our, uh, our you know, a gluttony of, of resources where you have multiple toys and, and robots and, and tools and, and rooms and such. And so what's happened is these protocols are making us ask some very, very tough questions. So for example, there are some policies in place that are being at least sent to our governor to talk about if surge comes in place where we have to make tough decisions. And then some of these are, you know, these utilitarian decisions, the most, the mo- the best for the most people. And does that mean that we uh, have a, an individual uh, person decide who gets a ventilator? 
right now we've put in place at Hopkins what's called a triage officer. And that officer is someone who will uh, not take care of the patient, right? You have your own doctors and your own nurses. They are not involved in the care. But that triage officer with a um, with a group, um, I'm sorry, with a group of other people looks at every single case and states, this is the patient who's going to get the care. And unfortunately, we're not going to give it to the other person. I don't know if we're going to get there in Baltimore, uh, but it's nice to be able to have the time and think about all these uh, ethical dilemmas in a, in a, in a calm way. Uh, but these are the challenges we're facing. And, and, uh, and I don't think a lot of us have been in these situations before. Well, that is, that's, obvi- you know, that's a fascinating and important angle of, on this to consider. Kind of before we dive deeply into the conversation about triage and resource allocation, I did want to touch a little more on the first point you raised about the virtual clinic visits. Um, you know, I'm a podcast junkie myself, and one of the most interesting discussions I've been hearing in the past couple of weeks on a few different shows like Freakonomics is talking about outside of medicine, kind of in the general business world, so many people are working from home now, working remotely. Everyone's thinking about once this all blows over and once we return to some normalcy in in the general business world, will people be willing to come back to the office five days a week? Um, there, there's longstanding research showing that people's commute is their least favorite part of the workday. Some people drive 30 minutes, even an hour into work every day. And so a lot of economists and business analysts are wondering if after we demonstrate for weeks or months that people can work from home effectively, will they be willing to go back five days a week and face that commute again? So similarly, looking at it in medicine now, if you're having such good results and, and having patient satisfaction and effective clinical interactions virtually, um, it will be interesting to see once we're out of the actual COVID window and, and again, back to normal practice, how much of the telemedicine and how much of the virtual visits remain a significant and, and then normal part of practice, even in a surgical clinic. No, I, I think you're right. And, and, and I think from a, <clears throat> from a kind of a theoretical or academic discussion like we're having, we can obviously imagine situations for all three of us where we're saying, you know, this would be so much nicer if I wasn't stuck in traffic and I was just sitting at a desk looking at all the documents in front of me and, and it would be easier. Now, that's for maybe me or you or, or, or some other people who do what we do. But what's always going to happen is there's going to be the marginalized folks, right? And so, you know, a lot of patients come to my clinic and we say, hey, when you have a chance, you know, do this on at home on, on online or, you know, take the take your mobile device. And there are patients who do not have access at home. And this mm-hmm. is not dissimilar to what I think we're seeing in the public school system where a lot of kids who have computers can do class at home via, uh, one, you know, these online classes but there's a lot of kids who don't have internet access or computers at home. And so how do we deal with those patients who are marginalized? Either they're uneducated, they don't speak uh, uh, English well, they're poor. How do we keep them uh, in our uh, new uh, system? So there's probably always, like many things, there's always going to be probably a bell-shaped curve where there's going to be people who are early adopters who are just so technically savvy that they can make the clinic appointment so smooth by doing it virtually. And there's going to be others who have absolutely no ability to do that. And there's finally, there's the, the other concern is, is what it then shifts the urgency or the emergency patients to. So for example, a lot of people with pretty bad disease will still see pay, still see their doctors or providers in clinic. And that goes for neurosurgeons and that goes for cirrhosis patients and that goes for diabetics. But now if you call them on the phone or you deal with a video and they say, I'm really worried, 
that that provider is probably going to have a much lower threshold to say, I can't see you. You're worried. You're not with me. Just go to the ER. And so the question becomes, does this now kind of uh, create a, this, this, uh, this two-way street where you're either really smoothly going to clinic online, uh, online or on the phone, or are you going directly to an intense uh, situation? We're going to have to be creative about how we triage because as you know, if, if, if the patient says, I'm really worried and you're talking on the phone, what do we say? We'll come in. Uh, well, clinic is, does, doesn't exist anymore or it's limited. Well, then just go to the ER. So we, I think we have to be careful because if that, if that happens, that's only going to further potentially stress an already stressed out uh, uh, ambulatory type system like the ER. So we have to be careful, right? We have to be thoughtful. Yeah. Dan, I agree with you. There's so many unintended uh, consequences of this, and, and I'm sort of torn on it. I will put in a, a little plug. We are interviewing John Ratliff uh, on telemedicine, and it's kind of a hybrid between coronavirus and what's already going on out there, and, and he's going to be interviewed later today. We'll have that episode out soon. And also, we're having a WNS webinar uh, this coming Thursday, April 2nd at 4 p.m., and it's free. And uh, John uh, and I will be leading that, so a telemedicine webinar. So it's a little different from a podcast, but this episode will get out before then. So if you hear this and you're interested, uh, and that's, again, uh, I believe it's 4 p.m. Eastern time, so 7 p.m. on the West Coast. And John Ratliff is a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford. So let me let me uh, switch gears a little bit, Dan. Uh, you Actually, JP had mentioned it about some of the novel research that is going on at Hopkins. Can you kind of take us through a very, very know, superficial, but uh, encompassing view of what you've heard about happening at Johns Hopkins, the neat kind of, of, of angles at the diagnostic, therapeutic, and maybe preventative measures that the researchers at Johns Hopkins are trying to get at with this pandemic. Yeah, great. I think there's, there's basically three things that come to mind, and they basically cover those areas that you just suggested. <clears throat> you know, one of them was, I remember when and we're still dealing with it for that matter, about the number of tests being available. <clears throat> First, it's about uh, uh, just people want to test because they want to know if they're sick. And that's kind of what you see on the news is patients saying, I'm sick, I'm not getting a test. And they, they get quite upset. But the other aspect is a truly a truly public health issue is that if you know who's uh, positive, um, then you really can, can be a little more of a detective and saying, let's maybe be thoughtful about this outbreak. That's what they did in South Korea very well. They were able to identify like detectives where you got it and then isolate those people. And that's probably part of the reasons they're doing so well. So, so Hopkins was actually one of the first places to create their own test. So our, our immunologists and our ID doctors who are <clears throat> helping lead nationally in this area uh, were able to define, make an own test that could be done very quickly at, at Johns Hopkins. And so what happened is, if you remember, you know, people would say, oh, I, I got the test and it went to the CDC. And five days later, I, uh, I got my test back or we were able to finally start treatment or what have you. Um, and so the issue is that that changed things very early on for us. So we have now our test that was really created by our ID people. So that was a diagnostic thing that happened early. And that was, again, harnessing the benefits. And so I think a lot of places are now copying that type, same type of issue. So they don't have to rely on the CDC and they can rely on their own systems. And we're helping those places. Uh, the second issue is, is things like uh, coming out in the news, uh, some of our immunologists are looking at ways uh, to basically take patients who have now made it through the disease and, and, and done well or, or done, done as reasonably well, they, they haven't passed away and they're not very, very sick, and then using those patients to, to transfer passive immunity. So you can imagine uh, taking uh, a serum, which has uh, immunoglobulins, and then using some of that as a, as a, as a passive immunity transfer 
uh, for people to um, to help uh, to help uh, give them, and that's being done through some of our immunology department here, as well as our um, School of Public Health, and that's being done. And you can you can even look on that. Some of those uh, papers are, are on the Wall Street Journal. Some of those uh, articles. And the last thing that I think is is coming down the pike, which is I think something that we're all good at, and we don't have to just have a big mental medical center. We can have really any smart data uh, person get involved in this. And I've now gotten uh, uh, approached by this many times now. Uh, not that I'm running it, but that I've you know just because they know me or they know through me through something, is that all the data that's being collected on our patients with COVID in our hospital, as you know, it is piles and piles and pages and pages of of data, whether it be, you know, the fever curve or the blood pressure or the drugs or the uh, PO2 or the settings of the vent. I mean, this is this data, as we're sitting here doing this podcast, is is creating megabytes of data that's coming out there. And that's all being cataloged and saved. And so what's happening is a lot of uh, big data analysts are now saying, can we have access to the Hopkins data, which is which is which is a laboratory that's happening in every single hospital, in essence, that you can basically harness that data. So what's happening is a lot of very smart uh, big data people are going to be using that data to say, this is the classic uh, uh, experience on a 60-year-old with emphysema. This is the classic experience and response and the physiological response in a 30-year-old who has no other health conditions. And so therefore, as <clears throat> we get this data out and we, and we fine-tune it, we can give more input to other people in the country saying, based on our experience, you have a patient like this, they can be treated like this because that's how they got treated well at Hopkins, or they didn't do well with that. Please do not do this for this patient and really give some very quick, very clean data out there to other people in the country and the world. Well, that's all fascinating. And, and obviously, as more and more of this research comes to fruition, that's going to benefit not only your own patients, but as, as you say, patients around the country and, and in different nations worldwide. Um, kind of narrowing in the, the focus of discussion then, you know, we, we discussed how your clinic practice is changing. How are things changing on the inpatient side there at Hopkins? Are, are you folks still operating? Have you had a, a volume reduction as many of us had? Yeah, this is a great question, not only for logistics, but also for, again, this whole idea of what's, what's the right thing? What's the right. socially conscious, what is the ethical right thing to do? And, uh, and you know, when it's, when it's all said and done, We'll look back and say, oh, you know, this this place did it right. This place didn't do it right. But right now, we're all scratching our heads. And so I'll tell you a little bit of our experience. We had early on uh, a number of providers actually have uh, 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 COVID exposure, not necessarily through Hopkins, but through other areas. So some of our earliest people in Maryland were providers because they traveled or something to another mm -hmm. part of the country. And so we had big discussions early on about shutting down access, making elective cases uh, be put on hold. But, but then the big issue becomes, I think some of us know what elective is, and I think others go, I don't know if that's elective. And so, you know, if it's a, <clears throat> if it's a knee replacement for someone who has had really bad knee pain, that sounds really, really important, uh, but then maybe that's considered elective because that can be postponed. But in neurosurgery, we often don't think our, our, our issues are elective. Brain tumors and hydrocephalus and spine fractures and spine tumors and spinal cord compression are not things we ever consider elective. So I'll tell you personally, uh, I was one of the first uh, uh, canceled, quote unquote, elective cases that got around the hospital because it was a patient with a chordoma. Now, chordoma is a malignant tumor, and it's a large part of my practice to these types of operations. And usually everybody gets out of my way when I say these are important patients because they say, of course, they have, they have cancer. But then you sit there and say, but chordoma is slow growing and uh, unless the patient's getting paralyzed. So I had a long conversation 
with my chair, with the head of anesthesia, with the head of the task force. We actually all talked about this. And then I talked to the patient and I was very, very impressed by the patient saying, you know, well, there are people who are sicker than me and I'm, I'm not the sickest right now. I mean, true humanity, you know, and saying that there's people that they've never met that might be more important. But on the other hand, also saying, okay, but like, when am I, when, when is it my turn? And when do we go? And isn't it true that by waiting a little longer, I'm, I have cancer in my body? Uh, then you have to throw on top of that, there's less blood in the hospital. Then you have to throw on top of that, what's the age of the patient? So if they come in and they get COVID. So actually I had a, I had basically a, a, a big number discussion with my, with, with this patient basically saying, what's the chance that you get it? What's the chance that if you get it, you die from COVID? What's the chance if you don't have surgery, it makes my surgery harder? And how does that increase my complication rate? And how does it increase your risk of dealing with cancer? I mean, we had to really sit down and talk about these. And, and I think a lot of us, are, you know, so anyway, that came up in this meeting because it was kind of said, this is great how we spent all this time really deciding if it's the right thing. But as you can imagine, some people have canceled their elective tumors and other people are really pushing for cases that we consider um, uh, not that urgent because they're, the patients are complaining or that they, they want to be the advocate for their patient. They say, my patient's in a lot of pain and they really want to go tomorrow and they push for it. So at the end of this, uh, uh, you know, when those resources are scarce, it's going to probably be a hard decision. Right now, um, we are still doing this, uh, leaving it up to the surgeons. But as I'm sitting here doing this podcast, I'm being texted right now for a patient who has cancer on Monday. And my uh, uh, surgical director said, does that patient have to definitely go on Monday or can they wait? So I'm going to have another conversation at the end of this podcast about how a cancer patient may have to wait unless that patient is, is seeing true uh, soon uh, risk of their mortality or very severe morbidity such as paralysis or weakness or problems walking. So it is going to be a tough decision for a lot of us. And I think if you stick to, you know, trying to do what you think you do for your family or for yourself or, 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 or the best for the most people, it'll probably steer us. But there are no protocols as of yet at Hopkins to say this patient at this age with this condition is delayed a month. And while this patient is, it really is a case by case basis, which is probably the best way to deal with ethics in general. Yeah, you know, I probably like a lot of folks at home, I got tired of watching the same news feeds. And so I started watching the BBC a little bit. And last night they were talking about how the NHS, the National Health Service of Britain, had uh, issued a moratorium on basically all cancer surgeries even for three months, something along those lines for say like a radical prostatectomy, right? And now of course a huge backlash of patients saying, well, wait a minute, now you're picking COVID over cancer. And it, it is very, very controversial. Now, I'm just now getting this text from my wife um, as we're recording this podcast. It is March 28, 2020. It's a Saturday at, at noon. And um, she's texting me that the first case of in Miami of a nurse dying, one of our nurses uh, just died in ICU. Hmm. So um, maybe, Dan, we could wrap up by you telling us, because you're a little ahead of certainly Miami, like what are you doing personally to protect yourself in this time? Yeah. So personally, so that, you know, so I'll tell you about the Shuba family. So the kids are back in school and school means they're taking classic online. Uh, my wife is uh, part-time, so she's not uh, working right now. And she's a physical therapist, who, right? Physical therapist. You got okay. it. And, uh, and then there's me who did virtual clinic, but I did it from my own office at Hopkins. And so I went in, my secretary and PA were in my office with me. We hung out and I said, wait, 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 you got to back up. We got to stand away from each other. So, you know, that's part of it that we're trying to do the social distancing. I walk through the hospital. Some people are, you know, construction workers are wearing surgical masks and other people are not. And 
I have my, my, my personal protective gear, and then I'm doing these surgeries when I can. And the issue is becoming extremely inefficient, but, but much safer, right? Safety and, and efficiency are usually not consistent until you really figure it out. Usually they're in the beginning, they're, they're offset. But for example, you know, when patients are being intubated, it's apparently the, the biggest chance to, you know, to, uh, to get something because it's aerosolizing and it's shooting in a tube at your face. So when you do surgery now, it's, you can't be in the room when the patient's being intubated. There's, you know, everyone, so there's all these different steps that we have to do. And, and, and then when I'm done with my case, I just basically collect all my stuff and either go back to my office or home. And then what I do is I spend a lot of time on the phone talking to my patients about how we're going to manage my next patient that may be delayed. So I, I've actually spent a lot more time planning instead of doing uh, which is frustrating for surgeons because we like to do. And so we'll see, so we'll see if things get a little bit worse or a little bit better. I think they're going to get a little bit worse. Uh, at least I hope they don't get a lot bit worse. And I think, uh, but we're getting better. We're getting more PP. We're getting more planning. We're getting more prepared. So hopefully we can meet that little increase when it comes and, and maybe, maybe deal with it uh, more efficiently. Great. Well, Dr. Shuba, thanks again for your time joining us on the show today and for giving us your insights and experiences there at Hopkins. Um, obviously, exciting things happening there, and we'll keep an eye out for what the labs turn out. Uh, best of luck to you, your family, and all of your patients as uh, everything continues to evolve here with this uh, coronavirus experience in the States. Thanks again. Thank you, guys, and for doing this for all of us. This is a wonderful service. Keep it up because we love this stuff. Thank you, guys.